So um, I think it's interesting also that, and I was uh, surprised, I must say, um, that Eli also doesn't like Plato. And as he said a few weeks ago, and I think that it's not wrong, um, even though Wittgenstein and Plato are so different in so many different ways, um, to see that the uh, mode of a Socratic dialogue, dialogue where there is an interlocutor who keeps making claims and where um, Socrates or in the light dialogues, the stranger or Parmenides or someone like that, but let's just say Socrates, um, is addressing in particular whatever it is that the interlocutor, that his interlocutor is saying. And it's true that as you get later and later in Plato, you get Platonic doctrine rather than Socratic examination of what the interlocutor is saying. Um, but the dialogic and dialectic um, mode of um, early and even some mid mid-Plato, um, is in a lot of ways what Wittgenstein is doing. Um, again, I think for reasons that, that Luke and Max are also describing, which is that he's really worried about your thinking that you have a key to all mythology, which is what everyone looks for. So does anyone know where that phrase comes from, by the way, that this is a cultural literacy moment for you? Does anyone know that phrase, key to all mythology? Okay, so it is from George Eliot's novel, uh, Middlemarch, and there is a scholar in that novel who's a, who's a scholar of ancient religions who is looking for what he calls the key to old mythology. And that is now a phrase within um, a certain intellectual contexts, including philosophical ones, where you're looking for the one right um, idea that is the, let's call it the root, the single root or the trunk um, from which all other intellectual truths are branches. And that's what Wittgenstein um, is, is arguing against. And what that means then is that there, one of the, one of the important things that he says, whether you agree with this or not, um, this is an explicit claim that he makes in the remarks on the foundations of mathematics, where he says there are no leading problems in the philosophy of mathematics. And that's an astonishing thing to say in, um, after Gödel, let's say. Um, and after the coming of metamathematics. What Wittgenstein is saying, he, he's, he's unimpressed um, for reasons that some mathematicians find cogent um, with a whole lot of what philosophy of mathematics is doing in the 20th century, what mathematical philosophy is doing in the 20th century. And the point for Wittgenstein is that there isn't ever a single thing that you can look at, which will then be that from which all other intuitions radiate and um, allow you to understand, um, get a grasp on, get a, get a handle on um, what the real characteristic, you know, what, what um, it means to, what psychology is, what epistemology is, what logic is, um, what metaphysics is. And so the, I think you should, so I just want to say two things. One is, if you want to see Wittgenstein's organizational ability, look at the Tractatus, which is organized um, up the yin-yang 
um, the organization of the Tractatus is extraordinarily careful. The, the architectonic of the Tractatus is something that um, is, is extremely complex and extremely, extremely well done. And um, the whole point about the Tractatus is to reduce everything um, that all truths to seven basic propositions. And, every, and they organize the Tractatus and there are only seven of them. The Tractatus is in seven, is seven propositions, um, each of which then there are scolia or um, subsets of, and they're all in a maniacal, not a manic, but a maniacal order. The Tractatus is maniacally well-ordered. And so what Wittgenstein thought um, when he decided that philosophy meant forms of life and meant understanding what it means to be a human being rather than um, trying to give a definition of what the world is or what logical space is, that what that meant then is that you actually had to look at um, the chaoticness um, of the way we, of the, the chaos that we are quick to um, put into a kind of order, but are too quick. So we talked earlier in, in this course a, um, a couple of weeks ago about thinking fast and slow. And what Wittgenstein is doing is saying almost everyone, almost all the time, philosophers um, included, think fast. That is, they have an insight, they have an intuition, and then they apply that insight or that intuition far more broadly than the insight or intuition um, should be applied without examination. And if you look at something like um, debates within philosophy, if you look at um, what happens when philosophers are debating each other, um, my experience of reading philosophy, and I think um, um, this must be the case for a lot of people who are professionally involved in philosophy, but my experience of reading philosophy is I find myself convinced by anyone that I read, um, you know, within limits. But, you know, if I'm in Sellers, for example, is someone I can't make head or tail of, but um, because he's such a terrible writer. But if I read Quine, Quine seems right to me. If I read Davidson criticizing Quine, Davidson seems right to me. If I read Quine answering Davidson, Quine seems right to me. If I read um, Lewis, he seems right to me. If you just get rid of some of the excess metaphysics. If, if I read Kripke, he seems right to me. If I read um, any philosopher, um, you know, it's like being a jury in a trial. Any philosopher um, who is good at making his or her case, and almost all philosophers are really good at making their cases, um, they make their cases convincingly. And so what happens when there's a philosophical debate, when two philosophers assert that they disagree with each other? So sometimes my, this I'm just speaking personally now, but sometimes my reaction to two philosophers disagreeing with each other is to think they're not really disagreeing with each other and that they're both saying the same thing and that it's a question of terminology. But sometimes there's a genuine disagreement. And so if I'm think I'm seeing a genuine disagreement between two philosophers, then I just feel um, whiplashed between them. Now, I think that if that's your experience um, of reading philosophy, that, that um, 
uh, again, to put it just a little bit naively, that the last good philosopher that you've read is the one that you now believe, is the one who seems to get things right. Um, if that's your experience of reading philosophy, and it may not be, but I know it's the experience of some people um, who love philosophy. If that's your experience of reading philosophy, what's going on is that you're having an experience of, of a lot of um, getting a lot of insight um, seeing a lot of very perceptive assertions and claims being made with each philosopher claiming that his or her insight is, um, makes other insights, disproves other insights. And so that if you read Hume, Descartes can't be right, uh, for example. Um, if you read Kant, Hume can't be right. If you read Hegel, Kant can't be right. Um, and you, there are all these different insights, and each insight comes with a second um, thing added to it, which is, if this insight is correct, then other apparent insights are incorrect. And Wittgenstein, although you could see him as claiming that all insights are incorrect, that what he's doing is constantly being skeptical of all philosophical claims, I think what in fact he's doing is he's being skeptical of overreach in those claims. So that, there's, so that what you get in Wittgenstein is insight after insight um, but also a caution against thinking that it's easy to extend that insight beyond the local place where it is insightful. And so the idea of language games, one thing that that idea can give you is a sense that something which is let's just say by analogy, something that's a brilliant move or a wonderful thing to do within one language game doesn't mean that you now have solved games, that you now know how games work. The fact that you can pin a knight in chess doesn't mean that you are going to be a better singer of catches than um, that, that what happens when you pin a knight in chess has nothing to do with singing catches or with throwing a ball. And so um, things, so what Wittgenstein is doing philosophical investigations is giving you extremely local insights and then denying the interlocutors, and, and a lot of those local insights are from the Tractatus. Um, they, they, they go without saying. Um, but then denying the um, expansion of those insights in ways that seem extremely uncontroversial. And so what Wittgenstein is doing is he is taking what everyone else in the world will take as an uncontroversial um, application of an insight and he will resist that what looks like an uncontroversial application of an insight beyond its original domain. And of course, what that means is that what he's going to be doing is in some sense reactive to, not as in the reactive attitudes, um, but reactive to what seem like 
non-controversial intuitive expansions of some insight. And um, so he's partly doing this on the basis of having taught this stuff for 30 years, um, changing his mind as he taught it, um, teaching the philosophy of mathematics, for example, where it's the, which is the hardest case to um, prevent um, people applying an insight beyond its original domain, where it seems like it um, is mathematically uncontroversial to do so. And he's, you know, he's, he's teaching this to some of the most brilliant mathematical minds of the century. Um, his debates with Turing, for example, are, are really quite wonderful. And um, what he's doing is, asking people, as he himself puts it, is to look at what's really going on. So if there's one kind of um, motto that you should take from Wittgenstein, it's always to um, just look. Don't assume, but look. But if you're looking, then you get, so I'll, the, the, I'm, I'm going to end, end this sermon in a second. Um, but one of the, um, some of you, I know, I know at least a couple of you know who the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze is. Um, and Deleuze is very much from a French tradition. He doesn't like Wittgenstein at all. He's very much from a French tradition of rationalism, you know, beginning with um, Descartes and um, Leibniz, um, very much a, uh, from a French rationalist um, tradition, is one of the major figures in what is sometimes called deconstruction, although he wouldn't quite call himself a deconstructionist. But he has an amazing book on empiricism. And the surprise in Deleuze is that he's a huge fan of empiricism. Um, you think of French rationalism as opposed to empiricism, but the surprise in Deleuze um, is that despite being a lover of Spinoza and, um, and um, very, very much coming out of a Hegelian tradition and, and um, an idealist tradition and a rationalist tradition, he's um, a gigantic fan of empiricism. And what he says about empiricism um, what he loves about empiricism is that empiricism is more radical than any other philosophical um, tradition, says, or philosophical um, perspective, says Deleuze, because it is always looking at the surprising things that the world has to show you. Uh, the surprising things that uh, we perceive, that we're aware, that we become aware of. And empiricism is a philosophy that is always open to new surprises. And I think that it would be right to see Wittgenstein that way, that what you have here is a philosopher who is always asking us to be surprised by the way things really work, rather than thinking that we got it figured out, um, that we have a basic template and, we, and things will fit there more or less well. And for Wittgenstein, it's whenever you think you have something figured out, he's gonna start coming up with counterexamples. And he had generations of students who had it figured out. And so what Wittgenstein is doing is he's actually responding to them. He's respond the interlocutors here are his students and colleagues who are saying things more or less like what the interlocutor says in the same way that Socrates is speaking to um, um, people that he allegedly meets on the street who are saying the things that Plato more or less um, records them as saying. 
And so he's responding to actual claims. He's not just uh, making stuff up and being disorganized. Um, he's saying organization is itself the problem. Organization is itself what's misleading. And so for him, it's not a bug, but a feature that he is um, um, saying things in a way that, that, that doesn't allow for a general theory. And so what Cavell does, for example, is to, is to talk about the first few people to write about Wittgenstein and to say, look what they're trying to do. They're trying to turn this into a doctrine and it's not a doctrine. And if you learn to do philosophy the way Wittgenstein does, which I know, God forbid, um, because no one can really do it, but if you learn to do philosophy the way Wittgenstein does, it's not that you'll have an answer to everything, it's that you'll have a question for everything. And um, that's the, the questions really, really, really matter there. And, and I think that's, that's what's extraordinary about uh, about what he does. I'll just say, I mentioned him before, but um, the, the version of Wittgenstein that to some extent is most influential for me is Burton Drebin's. So I think some of you know who Burton Drebin is, but many of you may not. Um, but Drebin was um, a very, very blocked philosopher at Harvard, who was um, a brilliant interlocutor for just a whole bunch of different philosophers. And if you read the acknowledgments of Rawls's theory of justice, if you read the acknowledgments of Quine, if you read um, acknowledgments of Cavell, if you read acknowledgments of just a whole bunch of different philosophers, um, they, the, Richard Jeffrey, um, they all um, thank Drebin for the most piercing possible questions um, that he had um, done um, on their own work, um, Quine especially. And Drebin, I went to his classes on Wittgenstein. He, he taught um, seminars on Wittgenstein for many years until he left Harvard in disgrace, which is another story. But he taught seminars on Wittgenstein for many years. And um, uh, they were different each year. That is, uh, it was sort of a, a, a seven year course. Um, and what he said, and I just offer this to you as, as, as an argument from ethos, was that when he first read Wittgenstein in, 19, in the early 1950s, he thought, this is good, but it's just Quine um, in a disorganized and sloppy fashion. And he told Quine that, and Quine was very grateful um, that Drebin saw this. And Drebin said it took him about 20 years to see that that wasn't true, that um, it was only in the late 60s or early 70s that he started seeing that there was much more in Wittgenstein than in Quine and um, then, then what was in Quine. And it was only then that he started reading Wittgenstein really, really, really seriously. Now, Drebin is the king of organization. Drebin is the king of careful exposition. And it was then that he found all his certainties unsettled by Wittgenstein. And, you know, he's written, he did manage to write a little bit about Wittgenstein um, after he left Harvard and had time on his hands to write. Um, but the important thing to, to say about that, as I say, it's an argument from authority, but Drebin is quite an authority, um, is that um, he, it took him a long time to go from 
being sort of at the center of a certain kind of philosophical exposition, which valued clarity and very, very good organization and um, a kind of um, um, synthetic synthesization of ideas to finding himself perpetually um, unsettled by Wittgenstein and having um, 50 years or 40 years of his own philosophical um, uh, conclusions unsettled by Wittgenstein. And for me, that was a really, really, really powerful um, um, example and really, really powerful experience. Um, so, you know, I think Cavell is really good on Wittgenstein, but Cavell you can get a handle on. Um, and there are doctrines in Cavell. And um, Cavell, I think, is not nearly as good as Wittgenstein is in resisting doctrines. Um, but what's interesting is that someone who's actually very pro-doctrine, namely Burton Drebin, um, found that all of his doctrines became shattered when he was reading Wittgenstein. And um, that, that for me, as I say, was a very powerful example. And it's just a way of urging you um, to see that, that there may be a reason um, rather than a psychological failing that makes Wittgenstein write the way he does. Okay, the so, end. Yeah, did you said the end? Yeah, I did. Okay.